Welcome to the Progress Podcast, Episode 2, Series 1. This week I sat down with Steve Wraith of Newcastle Legends. Uh, we spoke about his first foray into business during primary school, all the way through to present day with Newcastle Legends. Steve touched on his acting career, being an author, and building a strong network of connections. We also spoke a little bit about Newcastle United, being a Newcastle supporter, couldn't help myself. Um, so lots to take away from this episode, guys. Let's get into it. All right, guys, thanks for joining us uh, today. We're joined by uh, Steve Wraith, who, for those in the uh, in the local area, will need no introduction. Uh, Steve, how are you doing, mate? You all right? Yeah, I'm good, mate. How are you? Not bad, not bad, mate. Trying to get through all of this uh, this lockdown and, and, and whatnot best we can. But uh, it's afforded us the opportunity to do this, so uh, thank you for, for giving us a portion of your time, mate. Um, no problem. I know I've listened to a lot of podcasts that you've done uh, in the past, uh, a lot of them uh, surrounded uh, on the on the, the topic of Newcastle United, so I wanted to do something a little bit different and kind of focus more on what you've done aside from from Newcastle. Um, Newcastle will probably creep in there because I know it is a big part of your life, but um, I kind of wanted to to start off with, with with you. I know you've got the the book, which obviously we'll talk about in a little bit more depth. Um, but for those who aren't familiar with you, um, you grew up, I didn't actually realise this, you were born in South Shields, so you were a sand dancer, same as me. Um, you've moved to Gateshead, you've briefly lived in Washington, which is a little bit too close to Sunderland for my liking, but obviously uh, <laughs> obviously, you managed to get through that spell. Um, you know, you, you mentioned yourself, you've gone to, to a few different schools in the book. Um, you... For a man who's done quite a bit in terms of different businesses, different ventures, you cited in the book, which I quite liked, your first foray into business was uh, was 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 in school. Do you want to tell people a little bit more about that? Ah, well, first of all, on the Washington thing, I was only a baby, so I can't be held accountable <laughs> for that. And it was literally whilst it, well, it was literally while my parents were between houses. But right. yeah, I was born in South Shields. Never, never, ever lived there. Was born in South Shields yeah. and then uh, lived in my grandparents' post office in in Wardley for the first few weeks, and then was moved to Washington um, in my parents' first temporary house, and then we moved from there across to Gateshead, and that's where I was brought up. So spent all of my life really in Gateshead, and 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 continue to do so. But uh, but yeah, I mean the entrepreneurial story, which is in obviously we knew book Every Boy's Dream, which Jamie Boyle's written, was. Um, was was at a school called St Anne's, which is no longer there now in South Shields. And uh, I was actually asked, um, you know, by by the girls if uh, if I would show them the um, the appendage, yeah. which at the time, which at the time, which at the time wasn't much to look at. But because because this school was literally an all girls school, which had just started allowing boys in. Okay. It had a grand population of six boys amongst three hundred girls. Um, I was I was in a class of thirteen bo- uh, thirteen girls, and I was the only boy in the class. And um, yeah, so one of the girls came up with the idea of, well, will you show us yours if I show you mine? Uh, so I started charging ten minutes, uh, ten minutes a look, and it, it went down quite well with the girls, to be honest. So that was my first uh, move into entrepreneurial, um, you know, entrepreneurial activities at a young age of ten. Yeah. So was it at, at Saint Anne's where you got into to drama, or was that the next the next school? To be honest, it wasn't until I, I went to Argyle House that I, I got into to drama. I'd, I'd had a little spell as a seven year old playing King Canute uh, while I was at Saint Anne's. Okay. Um, that was just like a one off play which I did, and but I didn't pursue it there. And then obviously I moved from 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 Saint Anne's to Argyle House in Sunderland, which was an old boys school. Okay. My dad, my dad wanted us to move there because. He thought I'd become gay if I stayed at uh, <laughs> a bit bizarre. Yeah, and that's just the way I thought at the time, and um, you can't hold that against me, Dad. But no. he just wanted us to man up a little bit and go yeah. to a, an all boys school. And um, yeah, from from my perspective, it was there that you know I, I was behind in my education. I'd started off at the drive primary school in Gateshead, in the Felon, which is where I lived for a lot of my life, yeah. and um, essentially. That school was before Ofsted was was underperforming massively. So I'd left there. I'd left there two years into my junior education, and I couldn't read or write. Um, so I, I was I was up against it from from you know from day one in me in my education. Um, but yeah, with 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 that particular you know with that particular thing in mind, going to going to what eventually turned out to be private schools in St Anne's and and Argyle House. Um, my parents thought that 
you know, I might be behind in my education, but it would be a good idea if I could at least speak the Queen's English properly. Yeah. So they started putting us in for elocution lessons. Um, I went in with a, a woman called Mrs. Fennick, who um, basically taught me how to speak properly. She, uh, she, she educated me and she put us in for poetry competitions. She was that impressed with me diction and the way that I could speak that she thought that, you know, I could be a, a vital member of her poetry recital team. So, you know, although it was laughed at and frowned upon by a lot of the lads and, and a lot of my peers in my class, it was something which, uh, you know, I enjoyed. I enjoyed mm-hmm. getting up on stage and reciting these poems that I learned. And, uh, you know, it was something which I found very easy. And, you know, I, I obviously won competitions for the school. You know, we, you know, I've got a lot of certificates still to this day, you know, um, for winning particular tournaments. And uh, our school was really good at, at, at these particular competitions. We were actually useless at football and sport but then it comes to no surprise that the school in Sunderland's going to be useless at football because <laughs> yeah but but but, but poetry yes. recital poetry recital were great and we won trophies at it so yeah. um so yeah that's where that's where that all started so uh, you, you touched on there um sort of coming up against people who were saying you know this is a bad idea or sort of giving you criticism or, or sort of laughing at you for doing this thing but pursuing it because it's what you wanted to do has that kind of stayed with you throughout all your various sort of different ventures that you've you've had in 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 your in your adult years? I think it just makes it easy to to deal with criticism. You know what I mean? I, I've dealt with criticism and and I wouldn't say bullying because I, I I would never say that I've ever been bullied. Um, I, I've always been able to talk. I think that's mm. what I think that's what I gained from from that. You know, if, I can think of occasions where class bullies and school bullies have tried to tried to have a go at me and I've ended up making them look foolish by, yeah. by words. You know? um, a couple of occasions where maybe one or two of them had us by the scruff of the neck with my legs dangling and below and I've managed to talk my way out of getting a pounding, you know. Yeah. So that was always that was always my way, I suppose, at school and it's something which I've I've continued to do in life. But yeah, look, I think, you know, fair play to my parents. They you know, the wasted I would have said a lot of money in in a lot of ways because I didn't come away with with the qualifications, although I walked away from school with three GCSEs. Yeah. Um, but, but but ultimately what it did give us was, you know, the opportunity to be able to to speak and to talk and to and to perform, which which subsequently has led to, to you know some future you know future opportunities, you know, later in life which which I've taken with both hands. But yeah, I mean it's the move to private school was 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 educational in a lot of ways. It um it honed, you know, me uh, you know as I am now. It's not something I would ever it's not something I would ever do with my kids because yeah. I, I just think that you know it, it, you know kid, every kid is different. But um, I think you can get some really good education at, at the schools, you know, you know the, the state schools, and you know I'm I'm hoping to see that with my two kids. Yeah, I mean you say that you know, sort of every kid's different. I've got two kids. You've got kids yourself. Are, are you? When you talk, when people talk about entrepreneurial skills and entrepreneurial tendencies, are you keen to sort of see which way they go naturally, or would you encourage them to sort of develop the same sort of skills that have getting you through life, with looking for opportunities and wanting to sort of, you know, there's a lot of talk when people say there's two kinds of people. Either there's the kind of person that goes to work and does the nine to five and is quite happy with that, or you've got the kind of people like yourself who wanted to go out and wanted to have a lot more control over your own successes. Um, you know, do you think that, that your kids will be encouraged to do that or would you just kind of leave to see how they, how they progress themselves? The girls are going to have to find their own way in life, but I have already, you know, given my eldest daughter a little bit of an idea of, you know, how money can be made. I mean, for instance, you know, I do events and she's yeah. getting to that age now where she's come to work the events. So I did Floyd Mayweather in March. Um, for example, she came along with one of her mates from school and they came and worked the event for us. You know, right. they're, they're getting a chance to see a little bit behind the scenes. Obviously for them, it's all exciting. Uh, you know, they're, they're coming along and they're, they're helping out behind the scenes. So it's given them an understanding of, of what can be done. And obviously, I'm, you know, I've, I've given them a little bit of pocket money for coming along and doing that. So yeah. they're coming along, they're seeing, they're, they're seeing the kind of events that I put on, but then getting the opportunity to make some money. So it gives her an idea of what I actually do. So that's beneficial. Yeah. I think from the other perspective as well, I set her a task in the summer, um, which was to help me write a book. Um, I, you know, it was 30 years since Reggie Craig released a book called uh, The Craig's Book of Slang. And it was literally a, a book of Cockney rhyme and slang. So what I did was uh, last summer holidays, 
Um, I set my eldest daughter the task of researching Cockney rhyming slang from A to Z. Okay. And I said if, if she did it, if she could find me 10, 10 words, um, you know, for the full alphabet, A, A to Z, um, you know, that, that, would, that would account for me for her writing half the book. So what I did was I said, if you do that, I'm going to I'm going to dig out 40 unseen career photographs. I'm going to stick that into uh, I'm going to stick them into the book. I'm going to do a write up for each of the photographs to describe who's in the photographs, who they are, what it is. I'm going to top and tail the book with an introduction and a and a close. All you need to do is set your set your stall out and do it, you know, A to Z, Cockney rhyme and slang, 10 words each. So that's 260 words you need to find and research and put the meanings to. And that's what you did. So over the course of the eight weeks, she did that. I then put uh, I then put the money up for the print run. We produced the book, and within three months, the book was in profit. And uh, Rebecca's, you know, my eldest daughter, is now getting fifty percent of the fifty percent of the income. So she's uh, she's very happy. She's a published yeah. author um, as a as a teenager, and she's also getting fifty percent of the money. So she realizes that when you do a little bit of work, you can yeah. make some money from it. So you know, will she learn anything from that? Will she become a budding author? Um, who knows? But at least she understands that. You know, by coming to my events and by by essentially doing that book last year, that there is, you know, there is a way of making money. You don't have to be a genius. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not discouraging her in the slightest from sticking in at school and doing the best you can. But I'm teaching her that you know there are ways of making money without being, you know, a genius. Yeah, I think a lot of the time, a lot of the problems that people have with the regular nine to five is you can work, especially if you're if you're salaried. The harder you work, you don't really get paid any more money. Whereas when you work for yourself, whether it be you know on your own as part of a small team, the more hours you put in, as you say, and the more hard work you put into it, the the benefits are, are largely yours to 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 reap. You know, like you say, you put on events. Um, you know, whether that be with Floyd Mayweather, whether it be with uh, ex Newcastle players, the harder you work, the more you sort of. Uh, promote that event the more tickets you sell inevitably and it's a it's a great event for for us fans but for you it's 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 a business you know the more you put into it the more you and your family get out of it and i think that in schools i think that should be and i you have business studies and you know we've we've both probably done that in school but i don't think there's enough focus on that in schools that because I, I find that the school system is sort of or the expectation of you as a kid is to go through school go to college go to university get a job get a mortgage have kids and all that type of stuff and a lot of people I, I know it that have followed that are largely unhappy people you know yeah I would agree I would agree 100% yeah you've said yourself obviously you know in, in the book you compare yourself to your brother in that I mean I think you, you say that um, you know he you both were quite smart, but he was more academic. Um, obviously, he's a he's a college lecturer now. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you went down a different path, but you know, from the outside looking in, it would seem that you both were successful in your own way. Um, so, it, it you know, you and your brother are a prime example of well, if you want to go down the academic route, you can, but there's also another avenue for people to go down and i think there's that in school it, it, it's not a 50 50 decision kids are kind of presented with do you know what i mean yeah um yeah i mean i've been i've done a talk at a couple of schools ironically down in sunderland i've got i've got a few mates down there and uh, you know one of the one of the girls i know is a she's a headmistress of a particular school and you know her year 10s were really struggling uh they had a few you know boys in particular who were who weren't interested in school, looking to drop out, attendance was poor. But I went down and did a talk in front of 200 people, uh, 200 kids, and and she's, you know, I'm pleased to see six of them um, out of that 200 who were underperforming massively, ended up coming through with some qualifications. Yeah. But they were really, you know, really pleased that um, that I'd given up that time and, and gone and spoken to them. And they came up and asked questions. And I think it was just essentially all they needed was just a bit of, you know, a little bit of daylight at the end of that school existence that everything was going to be okay. And, yeah. you know, they the, the, the stuck in. Because my message was simple, you know. I mean, I wasn't the greatest of scholars. I was probably the class clown. But at the same time, you know, if I could go back and do it again, um, you know, if, if, if Steve Wraith now could talk to Steve Wraith when he was 13, then, you know, I would say, you know, you, need to, you do need to concentrate, you know, because, you know, you, yeah, you've got a good life, everything's okay, but... You know, who knows where you could have gone with with the qualifications? You know what I mean. And it's yeah. uh, 
but it, it's one of them things. Everybody's different, as I say. Every every kid is different at school. We're all we're all different human beings, and uh, I am a great believer in fate as well. I think that you, you know your life is mapped out to a degree, but you have a you you know your decisions your decisions ultimately decide you know you know dictate where you end up. Yeah, I mean you you, you say in the book as well, just kind of going back to when you say you're the class clown. Um, you mentioned in the book that it was around the sort of uh, I, I think it might have been after Saint Anne's that you said that you started becoming very easily distracted in school. When you read a lot of um, entrepreneurs, business owners, millionaire type of uh, autobiographies, that for me is one of the key things that are running themes that I find runs through them. You know, Alan Sugar was the same, easily distracted. Um, uh, Duncan uh, Duncan Bannatyne, easily distracted. Do you think? There's there's a correlation with that that when you're in school and they're teaching you the stuff that you've got no interest in, that you know you 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 get caught up in that thing of you're looking out the window thinking, you know what else can I do today? Do you think the that business itself sort of filled that void for you? You know that that sort of um, entrepreneurial I can go out and earn my own money and be my mm. own boss. Do you think that scratched that itch for you? I think ultimately. You know, it's interesting to hear that people, you know, who are a lot richer than me, Ballantyne and Sugar, both had exactly the same experiences at school. Um, you know, it's it's no it's no surprise to hear that, that you know those people have gone on to do really well as well because that the salesman, I'm a salesman, really. Yeah. That's what I do when I'm when I'm doing events. Do you know what I mean? Like Ballantyne's got his gyms and um, you know lots of other successful businesses. Alan Sugar's got the same, you know, started off with Amstrad and and, and then moved on into other industries and continued. So, and for me, yeah, I mean, you know, I realised quickly that if you sell things, you make money. So I think um, for me, my ambition is, is the books, you know, as the book points out, was always to be an actor. Yeah. So I wasn't thinking business and, and entrepreneurs. I was thinking, you know, stage and screen. I was thinking about being famous. So, you know, I wasn't, and this is before reality TV, so I, I was just... I was going to be an actor. I was going to be, you know, the next, you know, the next big thing. Yeah. And for me, that meant that I didn't have to stick in at school because I wouldn't need, I wouldn't need a maths uh, GCSE. I wouldn't need a geography GCSE. You know, I wouldn't need to study hard. So that's why it was easily to become distracted. And, um, you know, the, I think it was frustrating for a lot of the teachers. I clashed, you know, personally with a lot of the teachers. I think some of it was to do with, with us being from, from you know, like being a Geordie, being a Newcastle yeah. fan. I know that shouldn't happen, but no, no, you know, does, yeah. most most of the sun most of the teachers at the Sunderland school were Sunderland fans and they didn't like you know, they just didn't like the fact that I supported Newcastle and I, I used to take the mick out of them as well. So, <laughs> you know, from my from my perspective it was that was that was that was the aim. The the aim and the focus up until I was seventeen was to be an actor. Yeah. So school went out the window you know, once once I went to the People's Theatre in Jesmond and and started doing that from the age of eleven, I just thought there's no need there's no need to do anything because I'm good at doing this and this yeah. is what I'm going to do. So when you, you obviously you mentioned the People's Theatre, you, you started there at eleven. Um, you started in various uh, productions. You went um, and you started later on um, down the road. You started doing pantomimes in local clubs and stuff. I think you said it was around then once the sort of the money became a little bit more importance not the as you say you know you had a love for it it wasn't the main driver in your desire to to, to act but once you realized that the money wasn't as good uh, i think in the book you mentioned that you sort of became disillusioned with acting and you went um and i think you said you worked in your your grandparents post office from yeah there. i mean i got i got ripped off sadly i went to college the dream of being an actor was well intact when i left school i went to college and did the first year in uh, b-tech diploma newcastle college the guy who was teaching us actually used to be one of the six people who used to play a bungle in rainbow so it was uh, yeah he was he was like uh, jeffrey it was his name but it wasn't the jeffrey from rainbow but he was a great guy yeah. um and the, the course was fantastic but i in the end of the first um, end of the first term, I, I actually auditioned for a part in a, a tour and pantomime. Right. Um, I didn't get the part, but then the guy who got the part as the dame pulled out, and they offered me that. So I said yes. I signed a contract. Um, I was promised an equity card, promised X amount of money, and then when it it came to actually doing the pantomime, it was it was hard work. We were basically toured all the working men's clubs. Uh, sometimes doing three shows a day, so we'd be up at six in the morning traveling at seven, get to the venue at nine, set, put the set up, 
put your costume on, do the pantomime, which was two hours. And for me, playing the game, it was hard work. Yeah. So then you'd be finishing there at 12, de-rigging, uh, taking everything out, putting it back in the van, carrying the set and everything back into the van, and then moving on to the next place, you know what I mean? So we're doing three of them a day. So as somebody who was 17, I was absolutely shattered. Yeah. And it was. And when it came to the end of the 60-odd shows, I didn't get paid what I should have got, and I didn't get an equity card. And An equity card for those watching is, at the time was was like you know was the main thing that every actor achieved to have if you had an equity card it meant you were ready to go on to become you know go to the next level you know it meant you you, you had more chance of getting work in tv and stuff like that it, now it's just a union which i'm still a member of yeah but it's um but it was very important in them days so so that was it i i, I was shattered I'd, I'd spoiled you know that christmas was really spoiled for me because of the the fact i was working all the hours god sent and I just thought, if this is acting, I could end up doing this for the rest of my life, and yeah. I, I, I hated, and I hated it. So I walked away. I chucked the, I chucked the course, which I, I you know, I, I regret doing that now. But you know, with hindsight, it's it's all very well. But so yeah, I didn't have any options. I'd, I'd left school with three GCSEs, and I ended up um, going out out for, out for a pint with my dad and my grandparents on a Sunday night, like we usually did. And I just said to them, we used to went to the Wheat Chief in Carlisle Street and the fellow. And um, I ended up uh, saying to them, look, I want to, I was working in the news agents on a Saturday and Sunday uh, with me dad. Um, I said, I'd like to learn the post office. Mm. And they went, hey, you know, you, you failed maths. You know, what do you know about the post office? And, you know, and I said, I've got new options. And I, I spilled my heart out, really. I explained the situation. So I had to give us a chance. My grandma and granddad spoke to Mary McAvoy, who used to work for them in the shop. She had a post office in Burnerfield and she, she took me on on a, a month's trial, um, unpaid, but she agreed to teach us the post office. Yeah. So that was it. So two weeks later, I was away to work at Burnerfield Post Office, which, you know, it, it wasn't, a, it was, you know, it, it wasn't the greatest place for me to work. It was, you know, mainly pensioners up there. No offense to pensioners, but as a young lad, I was hoping to see at least some young girls from yeah. Burnerfield at the time. <laughs> and, um, the fact that the, the the shop on the other side of the business was a wool shop meant that it was fairly unlikely that yeah. I was going to see anybody my age. Yes. So, but you know, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. To, I wasn't there to do anything than learn the post office. To be fair, but I I did it for four weeks. I learned how to you know to you know do every transaction, and then I learned how to balance the books at the end of the week. And uh, I got sent back with a glowing commendation from Mary and. Um, my dad, my dad then, you know, probably one of the best, you know, the best things a dad could ever do is he, he negotiated a deal to buy the post office off my grandparents. Oh, wow. You know, gave, gave me 1%. Um, and he was 99% partner and he went into business with his son. So yeah. so that was it. Wardley, Wardley Post Office in Gateshead um, had a new manager and it was me. Because yeah, yeah, uh, your dad was a mortgage broker, so he had a, a good sound understanding of numbers. And I'm assuming that, you, I mean, I know you say academically, you, 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 you know, you didn't excel. Um, did he kind of reinforce that the sort of the balance in the books and the numbers and the, the, the making money, making sure it was profitable? Did he kind of teach you that side of things when he's went into into business? No, no, because um, to be fair, my dad never wanted anything to do with the post office. Right. Um, my granddad, my granddad and grandma had been there for thirty three years. That lived, lived and breathed the post office, worked side by side throughout their, their entire life. They were ready to retire, and you know, for me, with them ready to retire, it meant my job at the news agent side was going to go the journey as well. So, so it was me who obviously made that suggestion that I was going to go and work in there. Yeah. The one, the one, um, you know, one thing my dad said was I'd don't want anything to do with it, Steve. He says, I'll help you. I'll take it on. But I just don't want to get sucked yeah. into that. I've got my own life. I've got my own business. I've got my own job. I'll do this for you, you know. So that was it. So that's what he did. And um, my dad didn't have any understanding of how to do the books at the post office. He'd, he'd never learned it. So, yeah. so yeah, so my four weeks training, and that's all I had, was, you know, basically set me set me on my way. So I was, I was appointed manager. It, it meant my grandma and granddad stepping away meant there was, you know, two people out and me going in. But, you know, looking at the the way that things were calculated, my dad had to lay uh, like a member of staff off, so it was like the last person who come in was the was the first, first person out. Um, left a little bit of animosity, sadly, because her it was the mother who who got it was the daughter, sorry, who got pushed out, and the mother was still working there as a cleaner. Um, so it, it it was a bit awkward for me for the first four or five weeks, but it was also awkward because the the average age of the staff was sixty. Um, and I was only 17 going on 18. So from my perspective, it was really, really difficult. But 
and again, I'm not a conformist. So, you know, I wasn't wearing a shirt and tie going into the post office. Anybody who can remember those days from that area will remember I always wore jeans, I always wore my sambas, and I always had a Newcastle top on. Yeah. So <laughs> the way I went, that's the way I went to work in the post office. Um, so, and, and obviously, even in those days, I had my skinhead. Um, I, I, was, I was a skinhead from a very young age. Um, so, you know, I, I had my hair shaved as well. So you can imagine what it was like when, you know, the, the area managers were coming down from the post office and going, um, <laughs> can we speak to the, the sub-postmaster, please? And I was going, yep, that's me. Um, it was, it was, you know, it was, you could tell they weren't impressed, yeah. but there's nothing they could do because we were, we, you know, we essentially a post office when you go into it is it's your business. The, yeah. the building, you know, the four walls are yours. You're just literally getting paid from the post office to, to run a post office on your property. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, they had, they had, a, you know, they could tell you how to run the business, but they couldn't tell you how to dress. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was, it was tough. It was a strange, it was a strange time for the staff, but you know, by the time we got through that first year, um, everybody was used. Yeah, I found a few. You know, not, not wanting to miss out on the opportunity to have a little bit sky, but also found a few loopholes and and a bit of time to <laughs> a bit of time to go and put my feet up at my grandma and granddad's house, which was still next door. Yeah, and you know, have a bit of lemonade and a pack of crisps. <laughs> Why not? Well, you know, is here when you've when you you've got uh, you've got a, a well-oiled machine. Uh, and as you say, you, you know you, you you need that though. I think when when especially when you run a business and you've got quite a few of them, um, you need that time to just zone out and chill out. And would you say that you did any reflecting in that time, or were you still too young? You know, when you were you were going for a sky and having a break from the the post office, were you you doing any sort of um, reflecting, or was it literally just a sky and a bit chinwag with your grandparents? Usually it was just to spend time with grand, my grandparents. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time with them because my mum and dad worked quite hard when they were young. When when they were younger, bringing me and my brother up, you know. Yeah. So my mum was a nurse and my dad was a mortgage broker. So so essentially, you know, I didn't see a great deal of them during the working week and and weekends. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Yeah. So you know, it was just nice. I was very close to my grandma and granddad Rafe at the time, and um, we had you know we had a great relationship. So. So yeah, it was good. Obviously, I could, you know, as I say, there was there was busy times. Monday morning, you know, yeah. it was pension day, and Thursday morning was pension day, and you had, you know, child benefit Mondays and Tuesdays, and so there was. But we had busy times when you know you got through nine till eleven, eleven till twelve, or eleven till one was usually fairly quiet. Yeah. So I used to just say to staff, "Give us a shout if you need us." Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I'd go, I could go and catch up on a bit of telly, or go and have a cup with my grandparents, or whatever, you know. And, yeah. And, if the sun if the sun was out, I'd go and sit in the garden and read a book. So, you know, it was just it, it was it was cushy in a way. But the flip side of that was that I wasn't getting paid what I should have been getting paid for that job. I wasn't right. I wasn't on a sal I wasn't on a salary. And the deal I did with my dad was, you know, was essentially that I would get paid a very minimum wage. Um and in essence, if I if I could do that for four years, that he would flip the percentage round, and I would eventually become the owner of the post office. Right. But the only way I, the only way I could do that was by basically taking you know next to no money. Yeah. I was living at home for free. I wasn't having to pay board, bed and board. Um, so I was I was literally just getting beer money. Yeah. You know, I was I think I was on something like fifty quid a week. Right. Um, in nineteen eighty nine, I was so I was on two hundred quid a month, and most of my mates were coming out with at least four hundred. So I was on half of their wages. I didn't have a car. I was walking to work, um, but I also had the, you know, I also had the target of eventually this business is going to be Yours. potentially mine. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had that opportunity of, you know, of, of, of making that money. But the other thing I did in that in that period was, I think about three or four years in, uh, you know, I obviously a big Newcastle fan. I um, I started writing, yeah. and you know, I got the love of writing through 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 Peter Yates, who was me me English teacher at school who had turned my life around. He he basically um he basically allowed me to study the profession of violence by John Pearson about the craze for me GCSE uh exam. And because of that, um I took more interest in English and I passed English with a B and a C. Yeah. Um but I had an interest in writing. So yeah, I wrote a letter to Mark Jensen at the Mag, um, who was the fanzine editor with the Mag with a with an article I wanted publishing. Within a week, I got a reply back saying, "Thanks for thanks for this, Steve. It's uh, but it's not what we want. You know, we don't want to be too controversial." And I was shaking my head, going, "Well, what's the point of having a fans magazine yeah. if you're not going to do something that's, you know, an, an alternative view?" I thought that was the whole point of fanzines. So that's when I decided 
um, because I had so much spare time at the post office that I was going to start my own fanzine. Right, so you went from working in the post office, what percentage of the, once you started the fanzine, what percentage of the post office to the fanzine? Like was it, you know, were you just doing it over night time or were you kind of doing it while you were at work at the post office or? Doing it, doing it while I was at work. So those, those instead of nipping into the house and, you know, sitting watching the TV, I started sitting in the back shop in the post office. So I was on call if it was a customer and just started, you know, writing the fanzine. I started writing articles and, that was it, really. And then on a on a night time, you know, my dad would type it up, me, uh, or my brother would type it up, would go and cut cut some photographs out of the uh, the Evening Chronicle uh, of different players that we might be doing an article about. And then my mate in Scunthorpe, who um, who was travelling up for each home game, who'd also come come in on the idea, he was going to photocopy it and print it, like off on a, you know print it off and then fold it and staple it. Yeah. Um, and that's what we did. So, so essentially, we managed to knock up two hundred copies of the Mighty Quinn, which is named after Mickey Quinn. Yeah. We did it for forty pence a copy, and uh, you know we went up and sold it on the first game of the, this particular season. And um, first game it sold out two hundred copies of forty pence. So it was a, it was a nice a nice start yeah. to you know our our magazine career. So how long did that run for the fanzine? Ran for thirty four issues. Um, it's. It was on and off quite a bit because, you know, basically it was it became more or less a, a two-man band. I mean, right. the first two years, Steve was really interested in it, and my dad was my dad was quite heavy heavily involved. And then, you know, just different things. My dad ended up working. Steve stopped going to the Newcastle games, um, so he wasn't coming up anymore. So it was pointless him being involved. The magazine changed from the Mighty Quinn to the Number Nine because Mickey Quinn left. We'll put that out to a, a fans' vote. Um, and it just it just basically just became sporadical rather than regular, yeah. but it still it continued. So it was nineteen ninety eight that it lasted to it. It basically ran uh, about six years, right. and you know we decided to call it a day when we got to Wembley um, in the cup final in ninety eight. We thought it would be a suitable place for yeah. it to finish, um, but. I was parking it really because I, I was working in other things. I had my my time was taken up, and I just didn't have the time to write to, to write as much as I, I had previously. So you know, it was a big, it was a success, um, and obviously with the with the with the you know with the boom of Sky in particular, um, there was there was doors opening for me in the media. So you know, Sky Sky Television, BBC, ITV, BBC Radio Newcastle, all of those networks would come to me and ask me my opinion as a fanzine editor. Yeah. So it gave us a little bit more to think about. But of course, because of those allocution lessons and because I was able to, you know, to speak without, you know, dropping an expletive in, I was, I was, you know, I found that I was much sought after. And the yeah. fact that I could also, the fact that I could also give up time very easily because I was my own boss at the post office also meant that, um, you know, I found, I found I was on television a lot more. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a- to be honest, chronologically, that's where I'm kind of up to in my notes here. So that's a nice segue into you getting the uh, the position of fans liaison officer at Newcastle because I think that happened around the same sort of time, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was just that. I mean, we've been to Wembley, been to Wembley twice, hadn't we? Two FA Cup finals, two defeats, um, and then you know Freddie Shepherd and Douglas Hall had had a lot of issues. That um, they had the news of the world expose with a fake shake. And essentially, with you know, with that that expose, uh, they had to try and you know look as if they were communicating with the fans more. So they came up with this idea of a fans liaison committee. They worked with a guy called Rogan Taylor, who you know was a very intelligent guy from Liverpool, who came up with this fantastic new idea. Uh, Rogan got in touch with me um, as, as a Newcastle supporter. Me and him went out and did some road shows with supporters and um, we got people's opinions on what they wanted and how they would like to be communication with the club. And um, the fans liaison committee was basically born. And, and Rogan said, look, he says, you need to get a job out of this, Steve. He says, you need to be working for the club as the fans liaison officer. He says, they'll democratically have a committee voted for. He says, and that's what I'll set up. He says, but you need to be the person who negotiates between the, the club and the fans. And... Um, it was all it was all great on paper, but unfortunately, once we got through the whole election process and a, a really good committee was set up, uh, other fans just started to attack it. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't like me. Uh, you know, there was there was jealousy there. I think some people thought that they should have been considered for it. 
some people just thought that the the position of fans liaison officer that I had should have been democratically voted for as well. Um, you know, and they said that if it had been, I wouldn't have got the position. But there was just a lot of jealousy there. Um, and, and, and as it went anyway, at the club, um, the, the job really wasn't what it said on the tin. It was a big letdown. I mean, I, you know, I, I cover it in Every Boy's Dream, the book, but we, um, you know, I got there and for the first two weeks, I didn't even have a desk and chair. Yeah. Um, you know, that's how badly organised they were. The head of media who was supposed to be looking after us didn't even know I was starting a job there. So, you know, the communication behind the scene at the football yeah. club was horrendous. The only person who I really got a welcome off with, with open arms was Sir Bobby Robson, who knew me and had, yeah. a, had an interest in me. And, and, you know, we had we had a few chats like over the course of my time there. But, you know, it was fascinating. And, um, you know, it, it was a it was a great, a great opportunity for me. I was never going to sign a, a contract as a as a footballer. Um, you know, but as, as you know, to, to actually go into Newcastle United and sign the contract, you know, full stop is, is yeah. something which I'll be immensely proud of. You know, I thought. I mean, I think you know, just referencing the title of the book, Every Boy's Dream, like even just being able to go in, um, you know, and and walk around and see the the inner cogs of the club. Uh, I mean, obviously, I know things happen at the training ground as well, but like you can probably count on. You know, two hands. How many people get to see that who are outside of the club? You know, like that must have been an education, if if, if anything. Like that's you know to see how a multi-million-pound machine runs. Um, and, and I mean, just to get to you know spend time with with, with Sir Bobby must have been like uh, you know. It was like I mean, it was dreamland being there. I mean, but it was just crazy. You know, the situation was crazy. I, I mean, you know, I got asked. I remember, like it felt like a job interview, but it wasn't a job interview that I that I went went yeah. to. And um, I remember them saying, "Well, what do you think you should get paid?" I mean, <laughs> whoever goes to whoever goes to a job where you say, you know, how much should you get paid? I remember going home and speaking to my dad and saying, "What what do I say?" Yeah. You know, and I mean, he said, "Well, how much work are you going to do?" And I was going, "Well, I don't know." You know what I mean? And yeah. I've got ideas, but I don't know whether I'm going to be allowed to run with the ideas. It was all. It all came very, it all came very quickly, and I, and I was quite young to be in that position. If, if if that job came along now, I would know exactly what to do. But, I, was, I was just going to just going to say that that was going to be my next question. If that opportunity had come along now, given that we've yeah. got social media, we've got TV channels, which I know you're an advocate for of Newcastle using NUFC TV a lot more. Do you think you could have just gone in? You know, hit the ground running and and made a massive impact with the tools you've that we've got today. Hundred uh, percent. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, it's something which I mentioned to Amanda Stavely when I met her. That you know, that's a, that's something which I'd love to do. Yeah. Something which I, I'd love to see the the legends back at the club and working in every every single capacity that they can, whether they're giving ground tours or helping give ground tours, whether they're there on a match day as part of the corporate setup and and also in the you know in the east stand, west stand and you know, you know the Gallagher and the Leasers. You know, it, it, getting them, getting them in to do, you know, a pre-match talking on yeah. the concourses. That kind of stuff is just, it, it, it's a win-win. You know, you, it's an entertainment for the supporters. The match is an entertainment, but the whole thing should be an entertainment. Yeah, I suggested a long time ago that, you know, you think about it when we come out of the match on a Saturday afternoon at five o'clock. When we leave and we don't go back for two weeks, then essentially all the beer that's left and all the food that's left. But what happens to it? Yeah. It gets gets chucked away. Now, you know, what, what, what the club are missing out on here is the opportunity to do, you know, after match entertainment. Yeah. Let the ground let the ground clear. Uh, and naturally it'll clear. You you know, you you get probably seventy five percent of the people will still go home. But there could be twenty five percent who want to just catch the game's highlights yeah. and and grab another pint. There's a, there's a there's a lost revenue opportunity there, and especially if you have an hour afterwards where you put a bit of entertainment on. And you know, put a put an ex player on to talk about the game that they just watched in each yeah. each stand. You know, the club the club would get it's another revenue stream at the club, but little things like that I would do. I, you know, the one thing I did do as a fan as an officer was I located and spoke to a lot of the 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 fans groups around the world yeah. and just said, you know, that you know, ideally for us would build a database up. I built a database up, but the clubs never used it. And yeah. um, you know, up until Steve Harper's testimonial, I think, his benefit game. The reason I was asked to get involved in that is because the club don't even have contact with any of the ex-players. Yeah. You know, very, very few of the ex-players have have was, contact. 
Which is and, a, and that's, a, a, that, Mike Ashley's wiped it all away. You know, yeah. he wiped wiped the past away. You know, I mean, when you know, I know you're more than familiar with them. You, you know, you, you call most of them friends, but when you look at the list of ex-players, it's a travesty that you know these guys aren't, as you say, more involved with the club, whether it's a a, a tour or an after-dinner talk or even just an, just just a, an appearance. I mean, you, you know, you think the the atmosphere that you have in. Um, I mean, I hate to call it nine bar because it's Shearer's, but you know the atmosphere you would have in, in in that bar after a win. You know, if you just saw I don't know Malcolm McDonald stand at the bar, or you know even doing a talk. You know, you've 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 done a fair few of them in your time. Even just having a, a an after game talk with the next uh, pro, like that's mm. the you know people. I know you again. You um you call most of these friends. You know you speak to them. Obviously you've been doing it on Instagram. But for the general fan, for the average fan, these players are still you know up here. They still worship them. So to have them that close and to be able to see them on a regular basis, that surely that's got to be a, a a magnet for people to 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 the club. Um, whether it's for the club generating extra revenue, whether it's just you know, as a PR exercise, whatever it may be, having those people there and around the club on a daily basis, like I, I can't, I can't fathom. I mean, this that would go into another podcast entirely, but I can't fathom how that isn't just common sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, just it, it would be common sense, but unfortunately, they don't have it. I mean, a couple of years ago, Kev Hindmarsh was working at uh, Shira's Bar, and um, from from his perspective, you know, he saw he saw the opportunity there, and he he approached me. Um, and, and asked me if I would be prepared to put events on there, which I did. I, yeah. I mean, I put in the space of two years with Kev, Kev working there. I put Alan Shearer on there. I put um, uh, Les Ferdinand on. I put Peter Beardsley on there, and I put Gaza on there. Yeah. Four of the biggest names you can ever have in Newcastle United history all went and did events there. And I put a few of the others on Taylor and Nick Ostabizas. Um, you know, we'll put Sir John Hall and the Magpie group on there. Yeah. But we did all of those events at, at Shira's Bar upstairs. And we also did talk-ins with the likes of Supermac, etc. We did pre-match, we did after-match. So, to be honest, I was I was all for working for the bar because that bar is the only bar at this moment in time which actually generates revenue for the football club. Yeah. The rest of the, the, rest of the terminals are all hired out to Sodexo, etc. So, yeah. so, so, so I did go and do that, but then... Ultimately, the relationship soured again between me and people at the club. Kev moved on into the main stadium, and I, you know, and I, I just had to, I just had to walk away again from the bar because, you know, fans protest, etc., and people saying that I was just putting money in the in the in the, in the club's pocket, and I just thought I'm gonna I'm gonna walk away from it again. So there's plenty of venues in Newcastle, but it, you know, it's an ideal place to do those kind of events, and yeah, um, yeah we'll put some, put some big events on there. So with the events, I know obviously. Yeah, sort of your bread and butter. Um, up until very recently, was, was Newcastle United uh, ex pros and whatnot. But obviously, you've branched out into other uh, industries. You do a lot of boxing. Um, I think you've you've got um, actually boxers on your books as an agent. Um, you know, you've, you've you obviously um, did the the Floyd Mayweather uh, event in March. Is there any other sort of avenues you've got your your, your eyes on, or would you just kind of keep it at your core passion of of sport boxing? I do and football. I mean, I've done the I've done the boxing, and I think this surprises people. It surprised a few people who read the book. I mean, obviously, I've been involved in boxing for sixteen years. Yeah. Um, you know, I did the unlicensed for eight years. I was the person who brought unlicensed boxing to the northeast. No, nobody was doing it. Nobody'd ever done it. Um, up until you know, I, I teamed up with um, the European Boxing Federation and put the first one on in Felon. I put John Davison's uh, farewell fight on at Felon Social Club. Yeah. It was packed out. I had five hundred people there, and it was an absolutely brilliant night. And Gary Furby, who's gone on to do some great things on the unlicensed team, um, he he boxed on that as well. And uh, yeah, so I, I did eight years in that, and then I jumped into the pro game. But you know, from from the talking's point of view, that was. You know, it was during the unlicensed years that I, I started bringing the uh, the former legends to you know to the northeast. So you're looking at about 2012 when I first brought a, a well-known face. I brought Larry Holmes to to, to Gateshead, um, to, and he basically came and did a talk at half time during one of my unlicensed shows. And from that period on, I brought them all. You know, some of them I brought twice, and some of them three times. Yeah. You know, whether it's your Mike Tyson's or your Evander Holyfield's or your Tyson Furies. You know, I brought Chris Eubank, Nigel Ben, Joe Calzaghi, Ricky Hatton, 
you know, George Groves, Carl Froch, Roberto Duran, three times, uh, Marco Antonio Barrera. All, you know, the, the list's endless, really, and people, and, and Floyd Mayweather twice, which was two huge risks for me yeah. because, as people will imagine, Floyd Mayweather is not cheap to bring. No. Um, so, you know, I've took, I've took gambles on, on all of them, really, because all of these fighters, they get paid, yeah. and they're all predominantly are coming from America yeah um so it's big books you know what I mean I put it I put AJ on up here four times um I even promoted these the undercard for his first show at the the Metro radio arena you know so it's you know the boxing's a passion a hundred percent football's me first football's me first love um obviously I've had a couple of companies with different people I had you know I set up my first one players Inc with former Newcastle number nine Joe Allen and uh, Andrew Brewster the designer then I moved into Wraith Promotions. I was, you know, guided into calling it Wraith Promotions by a good pal of mine who works in PR, Andy Naylor, saying you need to get your name more established and well known. People know you, but doing doing events with your name would would work out better for you. So, so I did that, but it, it never sat comfortably with me. Wraith Promotions, and then I moved from that to a joint company um, with uh, another promoter, uh, Danny Cox. We did that for twelve months. It worked better when we were working in separate entities. So, right. so then I set Newcastle Legends up, um, and setting Newcastle Legends up was the best thing I've ever done because ultimately I just sat back and thought, what what primarily do I do? Yeah. And primarily I work with ex Newcastle players. So you know I, 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 I you know that's what I did. I set up Newcastle Legends, and we've we've drifted from the football talkings into the boxing talkings. Yes, uh, but we also do music. So. You know, I've I've pinpointed the eighties because you know I'm a I'm a I'm an eighties child really music wise. Seventies I was born, but eighties is when I started appreciating music. So I just started putting on one or two of those eighties bands, you know, like from the Jam and Bad Manners. Yeah. But that's 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 now gone on. To, you know, I've, I've you know picked up a few different acts now. So I, I put Hugh Cry on every year. I put Toyer on every year. Um, and and that big country as well. So. Yeah. I've, I've branched into the music a little bit. It's not, it's not a passion as such. I just enjoy watching yeah. these bands, and if I can make a few quid out of putting these bands on as well, then then all the better, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just over the course of the last sort of what forty six minutes, you've mentioned all these different ventures. Whether it's you know writing a book with your daughter, writing books with other people, uh, you know, boxing promotion, football talk ins, you know, it's such an eclectic. Well, it might seem eclectic on the outside, but to you, it's just it's Steve Wraith. It, this is just what your, uh, whether it's your passion or whether you've seen an opportunity. How do you manage, like physically and mentally? How do you manage all of those different things at the same time? Like, because it must be pretty draining. I don't ever feel like it's draining, but I do have I do have moments, I suppose. But you know, I don't have a salary, mm. uh, and that's what I always say to people. I don't have a salary, you know. Anyone who's doing a nine to five's got a salary. Yeah. They know they're going to come home with twenty grand, twenty five grand a year. I don't have that. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm taking a gamble on events. You know, every every event I do is a gamble. You know, there's there's always a profit profit and loss. You know, sheet drawn up for for events. And let's just say theoretically that you're doing an event where the overheads are ten thousand yeah. pounds. Well, unless I you know sell ten thousand pounds worth of tickets. Then I'm actually making a loss, yeah. you know. So anything over ten thousand pounds, once I've paid my staff and everything, is is profit. So that tells you, you know, a lot of people say, "God, your ticket prices are expensive," yeah. or some people, some people, you know, they'll ask you for a free ticket and they get they get a bit they get a bit knocked when you say no. And and like ultimately, you know, I can't do that because yeah. I'm running a business. You know, if I have an event and I'm, you know, I'm sure there'll be you'll find a lot of people who would tell you. If there's an event where I've done very well out of it, then I'm a bit more generous with people, yeah. and I can I can I can do it. If you know, if there's an opportunity to help somebody out, I will donate a lot of things to charity. I've done a lot of events for charity, support things like food bank, you know, nowadays. But you know, done lots for the NSPCC and yeah. you know Alan, Alan Shearer's Foundation, and name a few. Um, and a lot of these events, as I say, take up a lot of time and a lot of time and effort. If I was, if I broke down, for example, what you know. The hours, the man hours I put into doing the, the Newcastle versus Manchester Legends game a few years ago for Alan Shearer. Mm. The target was to raise 50 grand for charity. Um, I raised 54 grand for Alan Shearer's charity with that particular game. But the man hours I put into yeah. it, um, if you if, if you add up what I took out of that potential, out, out of that game, 
um, and, and the actual work I did, you know, I'm not even making minimum wage. Yeah. And that's that's my choice. Yeah. But I enjoy it. It's it's a life. It's a life I enjoy. Um, and you know, do I like living on the edge? I suppose I do to a degree because ultimately. I'm one. I'm one event away from getting, you know, losing a lot of money. Yeah. Um. The Mayweather one was a prime example. I mean, I was two weeks away from a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, had that event, had that event been two weeks later, then I would have been, I would have been massively out of pocket, mm. and I would have been chasing Floyd Mayweather for yeah. my money back, if if that had been cancelled. Yeah. So count me lucky stars with that because that that put us in a good place going into the pandemic. But now I've lost. Now I've lost all my events. Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting in, sitting sitting now still promoting events in the hope that September, October, we're back to some kind of normality with places open. Yeah. But I've got this horrible feeling that we probably will have to revisit these dates again yeah. and put them all back to next year. I've put a few back to next year already, but, but yeah, I mean, how do I, how do I balance it? I mean, it's, I just, I keep all the plates spinning, um, you know, because if you don't, then you're not going to, you're not going to get the best out of everything. So, yeah. It's just it's time management really, and as I say, I'm lucky that I don't have anybody looking over my shoulder, you know, telling us I should be doing this. I make my own decisions. I do my own. I do my own thing, um, and I do manage to keep them all spinning because, you know, obviously I got back into acting, so I, I can get a curveball thrown in every now yeah. and then where I'm away. I could be away for four days on a film set or on a TV set doing something, you know. But I'm lucky in the sense that I can still run my other businesses on my phone or on my laptop. I mean, does that you mentioned the acting there? Does that sort of of the variety of things that you do? Does that kind of keep you you motivated, keep you interested because you've got so many different types of plates spinning, rather than you know like somebody who just works in a call center or just works in a, a fish and chip shop? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know it's the same sort of thing every single day. Do you think the variety that you have keeps you? motivated and, and optimistic and, and, and sort of looking forward to the next thing yeah I think variety is a spice of life and I definitely am happy with you know what what I do I mean and it's just as well I've got other plates to spin because if I was reliant on events um, and, and acting as my only two sources of income yes. then I'd be snookered now during the pandemic as it happens I run a publishing company and I write books so what's happened you know since March is the book sales have gone through the roof yeah. um, and, and usually usually this period in time uh, between March and July we sell virtually no books yeah. because people haven't got an interest um, you know your busiest period is leading up to summer holidays and Father's Day yeah. um, and then and then Christmas time so you know end of October through to the 24th of December you, you tend to have a massive that's your biggest sales period so for me this has been great. Yeah. The pandemic's been great. I've, 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 you know, I'm, I'm at the post office virtually every day posting books. So we've had some big orders, um, and that's great. So I've concentrated on that part of the business, and I've, it's given us time to obviously sit and write the new book that I'm doing, Operation Sears, yeah, which is which is about the Sears family from my perspective. So there's there's lots of other stuff. I've I've even managed to record a small drama for a director in London, which which you know which which is which is good. You know, so even the acting is. Although that hasn't been a paid job, it's something we've done and it's given us a few ideas. But there's there's loads of stuff. When you're a creative person like me, there's, there's a load of stuff that can still be done even in lockdown, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously, I know you've um, you've done a lot of uh, Instagram live chats with former players. Um, you know, you did a, a, a one with Jamie about the book. Do you think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that, not necessarily from, from you, but from, from other people similar to yourself who've got multiple businesses on the go do you think we're going to start seeing things like that as a an even bigger way of promoting products and 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 you know a, a business do you think because it can I be think done pandemic's, pandemic's going to change things for everybody um you know i think you'll find a lot of a lot of businesses will decide that they don't need office space and yeah. that you know people can people can work from home uh with regards to podcasts um I would have, you know, I've messed around with podcasts for the last few years. I mean, I did a, I did like a, a, an audio podcast years ago called NUFC Tune Talk before yeah. podcasts had ever really been thought about. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying I was a pioneer for podcasts, but I was certainly a pioneer for Newcastle podcasts because yeah. within six, within six months of me doing it, there was somebody, somebody from a fanzine copying me and and doing one and and putting a bit of production and money into it. Yeah. Now, from from my perspective. Um, it's always been in the back of my mind to do one, 
Um, so last year we started doing one with Malcolm McDonald and John Gibson, but we weren't getting the traction. We weren't getting the viewers. We weren't getting the what what I was hoping for. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, my own personal YouTube page, which at the time had a lot of copyrighted stuff on, you know, stuff which I didn't own, gangster documentaries. I used I used it essentially on YouTube to to store the back catalogue of gangster right. programs. But then it became so popular. I, I had some view. I had videos with like nine hundred thousand to a million views on, it, and I was like, "Wow, this is mental." Yeah. I ended up with um, I ended up with twenty thousand subscribers, and I thought, "What you know, when I have time, it's that famous saying. Yeah. Um, if I if I ever have time, I'll sort that I'll sort that out. Yeah. And maybe I'll start doing podcasts on there. So, you know, the pandemic has now arrived in March, and. I, I just basically had a chat with a guy who uh, runs media arts, Neil Jackson, and said, "Look, once the pandemic's over, do you fancy doing some? Do you fancy doing a couple of interviews? I'll go out and interview a few people." And I says, "We'll use my page because I've already got like, yeah. you know, you know, I've, I've now by this time I had twenty five thousand subscribers." And I said, um, "He said, yeah, I'm up for it." But anyways, as, as the pandemic stretched on, I was like, I'm, Instagram uh, rejigged things a little bit, and I thought, oh, "I could actually do them on there." So. Over the last seven weeks, I've, I've managed to, to go from doing these live streams on Instagram to then using a, an app called StreamYard and then uh, and then doing podcasts which people have enjoyed. Yeah. You can interact on them. Um, you can interact. You can ask questions. So I've just used – I've opened my black book and just used the contacts who, who've been up for doing it. So it's, it's proved to be really successful. I think we're averaging between anything between two to 4,500 views each, each night, which is really nice. Um, we're getting some really positive comments. Uh, a lot of people saying I should be charging for it and doing that. And I said, well, no, but it's a pandemic. I don't want to charge. Yeah. And look, we'll just continue to do what we're doing. So look, through through the pandemic, I've now fallen into doing something which I was doing a few years back. Will it continue? I don't know. Let's let's see what happens. It'll continue for the lockdown. Yeah. I'm happy to do it. I'm doing one a day, quarter four with uh, Nobby Solano. So, you know, it, it's, it's good to be able to do it. And, the crime stuff as well is, is always going to be part of my life. So, like you mentioned, I interviewed Jamie Boyle about Lee Duffy yesterday. I've done, uh, I did Steve Gillen, an armed robber, a few days ago. Dave Courtney's going to come on and do one with us in the next few weeks. So, I'm, you know, it's something which I'm, which I'm, you know, potentially looking at, at, at you know, doing and, and doing a bit more. And maybe he's making it more Northeast related. You yeah. know, there's a lot of people in the Northeast who don't get the publicity. You, you're interviewing me, which is nice. But there's a lot of, a lot of people who I know who, you know who I who I could quite fancy interviewing and, and give them a give them a little bit of a stage to yeah. to, to you know to, to promote themselves on. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, I can't do everything, um, but but I do enjoy talking, as you know. And uh, you know, I think you know maybe maybe it's an opportunity there. Maybe it's an opportunity I might explore further. But we'll wait and see. Yeah, I mean, just, just sort of last point, and it's one of the kind of the key takeaways that I wanted to sort of share with people is you mentioned before just there about sort of your black book, your contacts. Um, a lot of people put a focus on building a strong, you know, you call it a black book, others call it a network, building a strong network of, of people who you've put time and effort into cultivating these relationships with. Do you think that is one of the keys to kind of building one or multiple successful businesses is having that strong network? Yeah, you've got to have a strong network. You're only as good as your network. Um, you're only, you're only as good as your network and your reputation, really. Your reputation is, is very important. If you haven't got a good reputation, then you're not going to be able to progress you know, in, in various circles. A lot of people have said to me that the criminal connections that I've had over the years is something which has maybe held us back or the thought it would hold us back. Right. But I'm not, a crimi- I'm not a criminal. I'm not a gangster. Yeah. I'm not, I've never pretended to be one. Um, you know, whether I've been you know, in, you know, in London or abroad, I'm not somebody who's who's ever said I'm a gangster, I'm a criminal, because I'm not. Yeah. Um, but I've met a lot of them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I've, I've, met, I've met them all, really, in, in the grand scheme of things. You know, all the main names, certainly, that you will have heard of. Yeah. Um, but for me, I just think that that's given me a, it's given me a, you know, a street, a street level way of life. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I, I, I understand, I understand people a lot more. And, and, I, and I don't judge people by, you know, by their past. I judge people by what they're doing with yeah. me now. So, Essentially, I, I, you know, I know that I've, I've helped put a, you know, a better perspective on a few people's lives. But you'll always be criticised, you know, by people. There's always people who are always going to say, well, you know, you're a gangster sympathiser or you're this or you're that. But 
you know, it's the same people who have a go at you about politics when they yeah. don't really know what you vote at the ballot box. Yeah. Um, or have a go at you about your religion when they don't know whether you, you know, you know what you practice. So, you know, the, it's it's the same kind of criticism that gets leveled at you from all kinds of quarters. But you've just got to you've just got to crack on and deal with it. You know, and and you know, from a business point of view, yeah, contacts. It, you know, they're very important and you, you should never underestimate, you know, un- underestimate people. Never take people for granted either. Yeah. You know, I've always I've always said to people, um, you know, you need to look after you need to look after your sponsors and uh, for events, for example, you know, and, and make sure that you can, you know, you either do a deal for them if they're regulars or, you know, you know, if you know, you know just getting them a bottle of champagne yeah. on, a, on an event makes a big difference. You know, it's just little little tricks of the trade. It's, I it's the little things that matter, though, with a lot of people, isn't it? The little gestures that. You know, most people when you when you talk about gestures, most people think like, oh, giving them a, a fancy, expensive present or a hamper from Harrods or whatever it may be. But as you say, sometimes it could just be a case of giving a, a ticket to an event. It can be a bottle of wine. You know, it can be you know a, a, a chat over the phone that they weren't expecting. You know, it's little things like that that I think help to build. That, that that network that you say you know so um yeah. just before we, we, we'll wrap things up steve i just wanted to kind of touch on what you were mentioning there about um people's opinions of you and what you've done you say in the book um that you're liking yourself to marmite some people like you some people don't like you do you think oh i'll rephrase that how do you think your perceived um sort of brand or your perceived reputation affects your businesses do you think people kind of go oh it's steve wraith it's going to be a good event or do you think oh, he's a you know he's, he's a criminal sympathizer i'm staying away how do you like what is it how does that translate to you personally there's a majority of the people don't give a monkeys about you know my, me personally the but if there's an event they want to go to they'll go to it yeah um there's, you know guarantee as well there's a lot of people out there who an opinion about me who still come to my events and that's just the way it is because if you want to see Mike Tyson or you want to see Floyd Mayweather or you want to see Alan Shearer um, you know it's me who's putting the event on yeah. so you have to bite the bullet I'm not li- I'm not likely to know that you're there and I'm not likely to know what your opinion about it is and that's it but look it, 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 life is like that not everyone is going to like you um, there's been a lot of a lot of occasions where you know and it, it continues to happen where people either see something, maybe it's a podcast like this, or they meet us at an event, event, and I'll get an email, or I'll get an inbox on one of the social media platforms saying, "Steve, got to be honest, thought you were a knacker, but <laughs> when I met, when I met you, I really liked you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, I was wrong. Yeah. So to get those kind of turnovers is is great. You know what I mean? It it, it does it does show you that you're doing something right. Yeah. Um, I think opening up, I've I've never really done interviews as such over the last couple of years um, at all, um, you know, about me. But obviously with the book coming out, I've done a few more recently. Yeah. Um, I think jumping onto James English and Sean Atwood's huge podcast has been massively beneficial. Yeah. It's, a wider, it's a wider audience than I can reach and, 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 and no doubt you can reach. Yeah. But I think a lot of pe- the, the feedback I've had off them and, and then the... And then the the subsequent follows on social media and then the comments I've had off people have been, been absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So it's given me, given me a bit of a boost to be fair. Not that I was down, but it, it, it has given us a boost and that's, that's all you can ask for, you know, I, yeah. but I'm not there. To, I'm not here to, to please people, you know, as Steve Wraith, I'm just myself. I'm, I'm being myself. I've always been myself. And, you know, as I say, not everyone's going to like everybody. And, uh, you know, I am like Marmite. I appreciate that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'd, I'd like to think I've given a lot more people pleasure than 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 grief. You know. Yeah. No, mate. Really, really appreciate that. Uh, listen, before we go, we'll do something a bit fun. We did one last week with uh, with Dan Hardy from Memento. So it's called Rapid Fire Five. Five questions off the bounce. Two answer, uh, two options, answers wise. I want your first answer. You've got to pick your favourite, right? So, movie acting or stage acting? Movie acting. Paul Weller solo or the Jam? The Jam. Newcastle five nil Man United nil. Sorry, Newcastle five Man United nil or Newcastle three Barcelona two. Well, I'm going to go for Newcastle five Man United nil, but I'd rather see Newcastle beating the Macams any day. <laughs> uh, Fury or Wilder in the rematch? Fury. 
And this is the controversial one that we had last week. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Good man. There we go. It's 1-1 in the series. Get in. Listen, <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. I'll let you get away and uh, prepare for your, your chat with Nobby. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much. Cheers, mate. Tom, man. Cheers. Thanks, Bye-bye. mate. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week, guys. Uh, hopefully, there was lots to take away uh, from the chat with Steve. Um, head over to Amazon to pick up a copy of Steve's book, Every Boy's Dream. He touched on uh, his life so far and his career uh, and a little bit about your Catch United uh, in today's chat. I'm sure there'll be lots more stories uh, in the book, so please head across to Amazon uh, and support Steve with that. Also, if you have time, uh, I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a, a five-star review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. It does help us reach uh, a wider audience uh, with the podcast. Um, take care, guys. Uh, we'll see you on the next one.